0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. That's psychologists off the clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview.
1: Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm
0: Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California, where I specialize in mindfulness and values-based approaches to therapy.
1: In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics from psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Diana. Hi, Debbie. Good to see you today. See you too. So you have a really interesting interview ahead for us today. Tell us a little bit about what we have. Yes, we're going
0: to be talking with Dr. Anita Johnston, and she's a specialist in eating disorders that takes a really different approach to treatment, incorporating myth and storytelling and metaphor. And I'm connected with uh, Dr. Johnston from way back. One of two of my early mentors, Francie White who's a dietitian specializing in eating disorders, and Dr. Malia Sperry. Both have worked with her, and I'm really excited to finally talk to her in person today.
1: Oh, cool. So you have some interesting connections, and it sounds like she takes a really interesting approach to her work.
0: Yes, and I know both of us use metaphor in our work as ACT therapists, and I was just curious for you, Debbie, how you use it, and what do you like about using metaphor?
1: Yeah. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, metaphor is used a lot, um, partly as a way to just help people really quickly make some connections they may not have been making. And it's a way of, of processing things in a different way, like in a more experiential based way, instead of being really sort of intellectualized, and so I find in my practice, when I can use a metaphor to illustrate an idea, it tends to just make a little bit more sense to people and kind of stick with them longer. Mm-hmm. How about you? Do you find the same thing? Yes, I
0: think it. It also uses some um, sort of gets uses our language to get around language because a lot of times language is what's part of our inflexibility in our thinking. And when we use metaphor and myth, it's another way of relating to something. So I'm excited. Yeah. To- to share uh, Dr. Johnson, share some of her metaphors and some of my favorite ones that she's used in, in, in working with eating disorders. And uh, I think that you'll really enjoy this episode.
1: Cool. Thank you, Diana. Thanks.
0: Dr. Anita Johnston is a clinical psychologist, certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor, and author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor, and Storytelling, which has been published in six languages. She has authored book chapters in Eating Disorders, Bridging the Research Treatment Gap, and the Psycho Spiritual Clinician's Handbook, along with numerous articles in professional journals. Dr. Johnson has been treating eating disorders for over 35 years. A pioneer in the field, she founded the Anorexia and Bulimia Center in Hawaii in 1982, developed Hawaii's first inpatient eating disorders treatment program, and created the very first freestanding eating disorders intensive outpatient program in the U.S. on the island of Oahu in 2001. In 2010, she developed Australia's first intensive outpatient eating disorders program in Sydney. Currently, she serves as clinical director of Ipono eating disorders program in Honolulu, as well as IPono Eating Disorders Residential Facility in Maui, and is co-creator of Light of the Moon Cafe, which she'll talk about a bit today. It's an intera- international interactive e-course and online workbook for eating in the light of the moon. She's a recognized international workshop presenter and lectures around the world to professional organizations, conferences, and universities, and she's really best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling to her trainings into her trainings as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie disordered eating behavior and other struggles with eating, weight, and body image. Welcome, Dr. Anita Johnston. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. And as we were just chatting about, we have a connection from my early training, which was with one of your mentees, Dr. Malia Sperry. So it's really an honor because you've been infused in my training in eating disorders from the very start, and now I get to talk to you in person.
2: How fun is that? Yeah,
0: really fun. (laughs) And I'm excited to uh, dive into your approach to eating disorders, which is really, I think, unique and different than what a lot of uh, information that's out there. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the personal meaning for you. you have obviously dedicated your whole career to women and eating and body image concerns. Can you talk a little bit about why? What's the personal meaning for you?
2: Well, I think it really comes from my uh, interest and passion with women's issues, which probably I was pretty much born with. <laughs> my my grandmother um, was a, a, a formidable figure in my life growing up on the island of Guam. And she, during World War II, the island was occupied by the Japanese and she led the underground resistance movement there. And she started the first high schools and the first Girl Scouts and the first Red Cross. And she had always told me that um, we're not here on this planet just to take up space. So I was groomed in some ways by her and was interested in women's issues because the Chamorro culture on Guam prior to the uh, Spanish and the Americans taking over the island was matrilineal. Mm -hmm. And so there's still this strong um, emphasis on women and what women can do. So I was just always fascinated by that and then started uh, studying women's issues and the struggle with eating and body image seemed to be So uh, pervasive. It it seemed like, you know, there wasn't a woman around that didn't struggle in some way. And so I just became fascinated by that. I I became very curious about it. And um, since then, I've been working with women who struggle with all sorts of eating difficulties. And I've just loved it. I've loved the women. I've found them to be some of the most incredible, creative, sensitive individuals that I've ever met. And um, I believe they're the people the world has been waiting for. So uh, it's just very exciting work for me. I've never stopped being enthralled.
0: Wonderful. And one of the things that you've that you do in your work is integrating storytelling and myth. And that's what a lot of eating in the light of the moon, the book is based on. Why did you choose that? And and how is that? um, Have you seen that beneficial to women who are struggling with body image and weight issues?
2: Again, it's a combination of things. so I grew up in a multicultural household where a lot of teaching was done through storytelling. That's how i I learned things. I learned a lot of moral issues uh, through the stories and then I just grew up hearing the stories of of my relatives and the things they did and and so there was always that peace in me I, I when I when I look back I can kind of see how it came together when uh, how it started though with the women that I was working with as a therapist it seemed like whenever I was trying to get them to understand something that was fairly complex the best way to do it, was through storytelling. And I was raising my two daughters uh, simultaneously while I was starting off my practice, and they went to Waldorf schools where everything is taught in story. So they would come home with stories about Prince division and Prince multiplication. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, I would probably know my times tables by now if that's the way I had learned it. And so I realized, okay, so I can use story to help people understand, um, a lot about what's going on in their lives that they may either, be overwhelmed with, or maybe even resistant to understanding because it's scary. So I I started just using little metaphors and stories in my sessions with my clients. And I would see what I call um, the lights going on in someone's eyes. Nowadays, uh, neuroscience is telling us exactly what's going on when these new neuropathways are created. Um, there is something that happens when they get the metaphor and it l- literally lights up their brain. <laughs> so I just started seeing how effective it was and and it saved a lot of time was the other thing, that, that people could get some, some deep concepts uh, fairly quickly and then begin to apply it in their lives.
0: One of the, my favorite myths is the log, the story of the log, <laughs> and that's one that when we would run the Parents' Night at La Luna Center, Maria mm, mm-hmm. um, Sperry's treatment program in mm-hmm. Colorado, Mm -hmm. we would often start the parents' night with the story of the log. And it was always an aha experience for the family Mm -hmm. to understand Mm -hmm. uh, what the struggle is with letting go of an eating disorder. Can you Mm -hmm. describe that? That Sure.
2: Sure. I, I remember, I remember the moment when I was sitting across from this woman and I was trying to help her understand something. And this, Imagery just popped into my head. And so I shared it with her and since then I've gotten It's my favorite metaphor because it seems to be everyone's favorite. I get emails from around the world uh, from people telling me this helped them shift their understanding and so um, I'll, I'll share it with you and then it's in retrospect actually that I realized oh this is how come this metaphor works so you start with imagination always. And imagination has has the word imagery embedded in it. And, and so we, we're kind of going in a different side of the brain. We know that now. So you imagine. Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. And you slip and you fall in and you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log, and you grab on. And the log saves your life. It keeps you from being pulled down into the currents. And it carries you eventually to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there, you can see the riverbank. But you can't get there, even though you're trying to get there, because you're clinging to the log. So the irony is the very thing that saved your life is now getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And so uh, this is important, I think, for people who are struggling with eating difficulties. It's important for them to understand that there's a reason um, for what they're doing and a very good reason that often the, whatever the struggle has happened to be, it keeps them from drowning in some very strong emotion, emotional currents. But it's a little more complicated than that because there's always someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. And here's where it's important to understand that all of us have a very wise part of ourselves that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. And so it doesn't matter if this is the top eating disorder specialist in the land or the person who loves you more than life itself. You're not going to let go of that log because what would happen if you let go of the log, started to swim to shore, got halfway there and realized, oh, oops, I don't have the strength and, and confidence to make it. Well, now you're really sunk, because that means you don't have the strength and confidence to make it back to the log either. And so there's a part of us that, that, that knows this. So, so then the question is, okay, well, what do you do instead? Well, y- you might try letting go of the log and, and floating for a while. And when you start to sink, grab back on. And then you can let go of the log and, and practice treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on and then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on, twice, grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200 times, whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to let go of the log. And so you can. So the idea with this is, first of all, there's a reason Uh, for whatever someone is doing uh, in their struggle with eating. um, It it has served a function and it would behoove you to find out what that function is because just letting go is not going to work. And uh, no matter how many times people say, well, just start doing this or just stop doing this or why can't I just do this? Um, Because this metaphor introduces another concept and that's of a skill set. So there are certain skills that we need in order to deal with the feelings that come up in us. And if you don't have those skills, you're just going to grab onto whatever works, even though it's temporary, even though it leads to other problems. That's our nature. And so introducing that idea that there's skills and then skills take practice. Right. You know, just hop on a bike and 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 ride away for the very first time. And, you know, you don't jump in the water and start swimming the crawl or or hop high in the seat in the seat of a car and start driving away. I mean, it, there's there's skill sets, So introducing that idea as well. So someone has an idea about what the recovery journey looks like. And it's not just um, uh, stepping from A to B. It's a little more complex.
0: Which is so helpful for the person that's struggling with an eating disorder to to understand, okay, I'm moving back and forth to the log now, and maybe the water's got rough again. So that's Mm -hmm. why, you know, Mm -hmm. during Mm -hmm. during certain stressors, Mm -hmm. I'm grabbing back onto my eating disorder. So it brings some compassion and understanding, and also for the friends and family, I think, Mm Because it's really a long course and can be really exhausting and frustrating for loved ones. So yeah. that, I think that metaphor was always, we, we introduced that in the beginning <laughs> for a reason, which is yeah. be prepared. Yeah. They're going to get you know, back on this log, back and forth wow. over and over wow. again. But over time, yeah. they'll, they'll have some more um, time away from it.
2: Yeah. Right, right. As if they understand that this is something that does need to be learned, and so it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, so there is that compassion for, for having to learn something. And I think for the person struggling, there's some relief, because they carry within them a lot of shame in thinking there's something wrong with them, there's something fundamentally flawed with them. And that's just not the case. Um, and the, the reality is, more often than not, They're very uh, emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive individuals who haven't, for one reason or another, been taught the skill set that they need to maneuver in a world that we live in that doesn't even appreciate and sometimes even recognize that. Mm -hmm. You
0: mentioned function of eating disorders. What are some Mm -hmm. of the functions of an eating disorder?
2: Well, I, I think the way i look at it is it really helps when i say stay afloat i mean stay afloat with these emotional currents because like i said typically individuals they're very emotionally sensitive and so what that means is that something that may be no big deal to somebody else might penetrate their very bones they feel things deeply they feel uh, um things profoundly but uh, we don't live in a culture that teaches emotional literacy, unfortunately. Um, in fact, we're taught often the opposite, just uh, water off a duck's back or it's no big deal or quit overreacting. And so what happens is that there is a skill set that's that's uh, important. And so one of the things that that the eating difficulties do is they, they do help either numb you from your feelings or distract you from your feelings uh metaphorically stuff them down uh or res- or metaphorically restrict them and that gets played out interestingly enough in the eating behaviors themselves mm-hmm. so so you can you can see Through the pattern of what someone is doing with food, what really might be going on? And I think that's what excites me the most, Mm -hmm. is that there's such deep meaning to the struggle. It's just that the meaning is hidden. It's coded. But once you crack the code, it gets really exciting.
0: Right. And you can see that through maybe for a young woman who's very angry at a family member, they don't Mm -hmm. eat at the table. And that's her way of expressing anger. Or, yeah. you know, or for yeah. another young woman that's that's very angry at the family, they may purge afterwards, and that's another right. way of expressing anger. and if we can <laughs> develop the skill of how to express anger, then maybe mm-hmm. we wouldn't need to do those things anymore yeah, yeah.
2: exactly and and um, you can really see though, and I, I'm at the point now it it sounds a little like blasphemy, but because I've been working in the field for so long. I don't even really believe in eating disorders um, per se because if you can really zoom the lens out a bit, you can start to see these patterns. So someone who's restricting their food That's not the only thing they're restricting. They're restricting their emotions. They're restricting their words. They're restricting new relationships. They're restricting um, experiences. They're, They're always putting themselves on restriction for making a mistake. They restrict intimacy. They restrict their sexuality. And so you can start to see restriction everywhere. And someone who is Binging and purging, or maybe yo-yo dieting. What you see is um, that they take in too much too fast, and then they got to get rid of it. So they don't just binge and purge with food; they do it with classes. They'll sign up for a bunch of classes and then get overwhelmed and drop out. Or they'll they'll meet somebody, and oh, all of a sudden that's the love of their life, and then they discover something they don't like, and then they end it immediately. Or um, so so or they they'll go shopping and they'll buy a ton of stuff that they don't really need and then they got to take it back. So you'll see this pattern everywhere uh, in their lives. And, And if somebody is struggling with compulsive eating or binge eating, what you'll see throughout their life is this one theme of scarcity. There's never enough, not just never enough food, there's never enough coffee, there's never enough time, there's never enough attention, there's never enough money, there's never enough, and they feel like they're not enough. So you can start to look at it, and, and the beauty of it is is that as they develop the skills they need to deal with whatever their eating difficulty is, it affects the rest of their life. Um, you know, long after the, the eating disorder is gone, they've got a skill set that's, that's incredible.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's where food is the metaphor in some ways. What's mm-hmm. happening with the food mm-hmm. is just sort of the uh-huh. gateway to the whole experience. And if we just focus on the food we're not going to be able to, you know, figure out the whole picture. There's there's so much more going on. Yeah,
2: Yeah. and a lot is lost. And, of course, you know, typically the individual, they think that's the problem. They think the problem is food or they think the problem is their weight. Um, and, And in a way, there's some relief in that. Because there's a part of them that feels that there's fundamentally something is wrong with them. So they can say, oh, yeah, I know what's wrong with me. It's what it's what I do with food or or it's my body size. Uh, There is a little relief in that. But the but because it's a red herring it distracts them from what the real problem is then that never gets solved and that's where mm, it becomes addictive in nature in the sense that they just can't stop doing whatever they're doing uh because they're they're trying to get to something else and don't know it so so when you're working with eating difficulties you enter the world of paradox, because on one hand, um, eating disorders, for example, are about food, and on the other hand, they're not about food, <laughs> and, and you have to find your way through this paradox, but it's a portal. It's a portal to a, a higher level of consciousness that um, is, is really incredible. Once people can understand, all right, you're on a journey, but where you're going is not just who you were before the eating difficulty. No, no, no. It's a place beyond your wildest dreams. Exactly. And it's it's amazing.
0: And that's where I think with clinicians, often there's a line that's drawn of either clinicians that say, I don't treat eating disorders at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I, stay, you know, I stay far away from the mm-hmm. paradox. Mm-hmm. And then those that are just in love, mm-hmm. in love mm-hmm. with women with eating disorders, because exactly mm-hmm. what you're describing of what, what mm-hmm. blossoms and blooms in, in the recovery process is, is phenomenal and mm-hmm. it's such an honor to be with a woman through that
2: oh it's yeah. extraordinary yes. yes and I think it's unfortunate that again there are clinicians that are afraid of it because yeah. they're taking the struggle too literally right and and it is scary I mean you know people die from um, eating disorders it, it's it's serious business to be sure, but there's a lot more going on that, that, um, is fascinating and, uh, and inspiring when you see somebody on that recovery journey. Yes.
0: Can we talk about a, uh, the sort of, it's not about food and it's also not about fat or about your body. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. one of the most common situations that come in is, uh, someone that's feeling fat or comes in describing themselves as feeling fat and maybe family members that don't know how to respond to that. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about that when Mm -hmm. people say that they feel fat?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the bigger the backdrop to this is we live in a culture where fat has become a bad word, a bad thing. Um, it's a like it's a derogatory thing, right? You know, people don't say, "Oh, she's so tall," um, but they'll say, "Oh, she's so fat," like like you know that there's something wrong with that. So so you take that as a backdrop, and then you start understanding the way um, the way children's minds work, for example. So when we're little, and this is the case with all of us. Um, Because we don't have our frontal lobes fully on board, is what now the um, neuroscientists understand. And they don't come on fully until you're in your mid-20s. Now, the the frontal lobes, that's the part that understands certain connections, cause and effect, and abstract concepts. Um, So who knows that they don't come on board until then? Car rental companies, right? <laughs> They're not going to rent you uh, until you're 25. Um, who else knows this? Uh, parents of teenagers, right? They go to the fridge to take out the milk, and the carton is empty. Wait, who puts an empty carton of milk back in the fridge? Oh, teenagers, no frontal lobes, right? So, um, when, so when we're little, those connections are not laid. And so the, as a result, the way our minds work is like this bad things happen. I feel bad. I am bad. Uh, Mommy and daddy got a divorce. It feels bad. It must be my fault. It's that kind of thinking. And, and until when we get older, we go back and we revisit those stories that we told ourselves with the mind of a child. And we go, Oh, there's a thousand one reasons why mom and dad got a divorce and none of them had anything to do with me. So even Freud knew this. He knew we went back and we revisited memories. So now imagine you live in a culture that says fat is bad. Now, your mind goes like this. Bad things happen. I feel bad fat. I am bad fat. You see, they get linked um, because of, of, of what the culture says. So then you have somebody who, because the story is running, they feel bad. And it, they go immediately to I am bad fat so so it, it, there's this story in there that then has to be unraveled um, and they have to understand that okay let's go back to the feeling oh how come you're feeling bad and so so someone has what I call a fat attack because that's how they've described it to me um, and, and and of like waking up uh, and feeling like they gained 20 pounds overnight. And in their mind, this is a really bad thing, Um, even though it's not rational. There's, first of all, no way that could happen. Um, And so then you have to trace it and say, okay, what's the bad feeling? And again, it's tricky because our language doesn't help us out very much. Uh, It it gets to be a moral issue when you start using the word bad. And so then you have to realize, okay, A child would define an uncomfortable, a scary feeling, an overwhelming feeling, a painful feeling as bad. And and we say that too, I'm feeling bad today. Um, And so you have to find out, okay, so what's the feeling? And it's a feeling you're trying not to feel. Um, and, And so you're distracting yourself because what's the first thing you see when you're feeling bad? Your body. Oh, my thighs, my butt, my arm. And, and so it's, what happens is then it gets literalized. And then they're often running uh, with, with the red herring. And the red herring is it's a term used in whodunit mysteries. It's like, okay, who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, or the chauffeur? And everyone's watching the maid because she's kind of weird. You know, she's doing things different. She's, there's something strange about her. And at the end of the story, there's a twist. And it was the butler. Who Nobody suspected because everyone's watching the maid. So this is what happens with someone when they're having a feeling they don't know what to do with and Remember, typically, this is somebody who feels things deeply. They're they're what I call thin-skinned, but I find that being thin-skinned is a really wonderful quality. I think, frankly, our world would be in a lot better place if more of our world leaders had that level of sensitivity and compassion. But if you don't know how to deal with these feelings that can come on really strongly, um, then you welcome the distraction of the red herring. So the food and the fat is that distraction. And we
0: have a culture and then often family that also get caught in the red herring. So as soon as you say, I feel fat, then everyone can, you can respond, you know, either way, the spouse will respond, oh, honey, you're not fat. And then they're in trouble because the person doesn't, you don't understand me. Because internally, if it's a feeling that's causing the fat attack, they're also not feeling validated. But then the, if the spouse says, oh, you are fat, then they are in trouble either, you know, as well. So, but then there's all these fixes. There's all these fixes yeah. that are, are the allure to get rid of this feeling, but none of them can actually get rid of it.
2: No, because they're chasing after the wrong thing so and and what a red herring I, I did some research, and I thought, oh, how did this turn what what a strange you know I understood the concept, but I thought, where did this come from And it came from um, England the the fox hunts and so um there was a story about how someone had wanted they wanted to win the fox hunt, so what their opponent what they what they did is they took a red herring, a fish, an old stinky dead fish, and they tied tied a string around it and they ran with it down the wrong trail knowing that the the dogs and and you know the hunters and the horses would would follow that scent instead and then they would win. So it's like yeah you can picture everyone's chasing after this thing everybody you know um not just the person who's struggling but concerned family members and friends and unfortunately sometimes even professionals. Now that's not to say that that you ought not to look at what's going on with the food and the eating. But if that's your sole focus, you're going to miss the bigger picture and miss what's really driving the disordered eating thoughts and behaviors.
0: So what would be the questions that someone could ask themselves if they're having a fat
2: attack? What's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? Now, it's kind of hard, right? Because um, often those feelings are unconscious. They're out of our awareness. Mm-hmm. So, so typically when someone um, says, oh, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? The answer is, might be, I don't know. <laughs> I feel fine. And so the fun part about, for me, about working with eating um, difficulties is the food will take you there. So let's say you go, oh, my God, I'm so fat. I ate that whole peach pie so you're starting with that. So you go, okay. So then you look at, okay, well, what was going on when I ate that peach pie? And maybe you'll do a scan of your day looking to see, okay, what, what was the feeling I was trying to not to feel? Maybe, maybe I was still ticked off at the person who cut me off on the freeway, or maybe I'm worried about an upcoming parent teacher meeting, or maybe I'm concerned about something my boss said, or maybe I'm furious with my husband and I don't know how to, how to approach him. So you, you kind of do a scan, but again, you may find, I don't know. There's nothing. I'm fine. And and so here's where the the world of metaphor can be useful. So that, for example, let's say I was working with this person with a peach pie. I would, I would say, okay, I want I want you to tell me about what you love so much about peach pie that you ate the whole thing. And So maybe they'll start to describe it and I will start listening metaphorically to the qualities they're describing because that will give some clues. And and so this is how you crack the code. And and it works something like this. Um, Sweet foods usually have to do with someone feeling like there's not enough sweetness in their life or they're not sweet enough crunchy salty foods typically are connected to unexpressed anger and frustration Um, warm foods soups and stews a lot of times is associated with a longing for emotional warmth spicy foods are typically connected to a desire or fear it depends on what direction uh, for excitement, stimulation and change and chocolate is a lot of time. We know this from Valentine's, right? Sex and romance. So, and if any of your listeners, um, are, they don't have to scribble this down. There's a PDF that they can get from light of the moon cafe.com forward slash clock. And, and you can get that. It's a, it's a free PDF you can get for yourself. But so you start, now we're all different. Okay. So, so we have to understand that, but it, This is a place to start, to start looking metaphorically at the foods you struggle with to give you some clues as to what's going on. And so the person with the peach pie, depending on how they would describe it, um, will get an idea of what the real issues might be for them in that moment.
0: And that's where also the paradox comes up, because I think sometimes (laughs) with an eating disorder therapist, a client will say, I just hate my eating disorder. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about oh. the binge. I don't even want to go mm-hmm. there. But by mm-hmm. just asking that question of, yes. what were you longing for? What do you yes. like about that yes. food or yes. that experience? Yes. It uh, connects to what is the
2: function. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 yeah. and mm-hmm. But you do have to sort out. So if um, you were physically hungry uh, when you ate that peach pie Now you're not dealing with the metaphor. You're dealing with just food. Mm -hmm. So this is how you sort it out. And so you started eating the peach pie and you were physically hungry. That's not metaphoric. It becomes metaphoric if you continue to eat past fullness now we're in the world of metaphor so that's the one distinction you can make if and and so of course that's why part of the process is learning um your hunger and satiety signals as they exist in your body so that you can then you know track what these other things are that might be going on
0: there was a talk that you gave once that i attended i think it was at uc davis potentially where you talked about a two tank metaphor of a hunger yes tank and an emotional Mm -hmm. tank can you talk about that Mm
2: -hmm. metaphor yeah Yeah. So again, using your imagination, you imagine two tanks, tank A and tank B. Now tank A is the tank you fill when you're physically hungry. You fill it with food. Tank B is the tank you fill when you're emotionally or spiritually hungry. And you fill it with what I call soul food, which is attention, appreciation, acknowledgement, meditation, prayer, and so on. But what happens is Because we're not taught that there's lots of different kinds of hungers, we think there's just one tank. So before we know it, tank A is full and overflowing, and we're still hungry. Or we don't want to begin to fill tank A because we're terrified that it's going to be the bottomless pit and we'll never be able to stop. And so what has to happen is you tease the two tanks apart. And how you do that the first thing is you develop proprioceptive awareness. You find your hunger and satiety s- Signals in your body and they're, they're sensations. They're they're physical sensations. I feel like pizza is not a, a, a hunger sensation a, 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 I'm talking about an experience of having somewhere in your body a contraction or an expansion a heaviness a lightness a roughness a smoothness, a hollowness, a density, and so on. So coolness, warmth, you think of those sensations. And so when I'm working with somebody, it's absolutely um, imperative if they want to recover. And I, I mean, totally, completely, fully recover. Um, they, they do need to learn their hunger and satiety signals. And that's how you rule out tank A. So then if you are feeling physically hungry, but not allowing yourself to eat, or if you are full and you are eating, now you've just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and you've landed smack dab in tank B, which is the world of metaphor. And that's where you start looking at those qualities of salty, crunchy, sweet, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you um, to a deeper level of understanding.
0: One of the things that you've also talked about uh, in your book is is another metaphor of the labyrinth of recovery. And there's a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. I, have, I actually have a labyrinth sticker that's been in my water bottle for about 10 years is how my water bottle is <laughs> <feeling> apart. <laughs> but I'm holding on to it because that metaphor is actually, for me, is one of the most powerful ones of When people leave my office that I've been working with, I often give them a little labyrinth, keychain, to remind them that there's going to be some twists and turns. But can you talk a little bit about the labyrinth as a recovery process?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I use that metaphor because typically people think of recovery as a maze now a maze is different from a labyrinth. You see a maze um that you can make mistakes and there's wrong turns and you become blocked, right? If you think of what a maze is, um it's not the same as a labyrinth. With a labyrinth there's one path it's a twisty windy turning path Uh, it can be rather disorienting because you're going around and around and hairpin turns but there's nothing blocking the way there's so so recovery a lot of times people get hung up saying that oh my gosh I really screwed up or I made this mistake well no uh, a real recovery is a labyrinth not a maze so that you may get disoriented you may get frustrated you may get overwhelmed but really, all you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and you're going to be just fine. And if you're moving too fast, slow it down. Uh, if you're getting too frustrated, speed it up. But just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And and again, with the, with the maze metaphor, it, you have an entry point and an exit. You go in and you get out. And so a lot of people go, well, I want out of this. I want, I want to be done with this eating disorder. It's like, well, it's not quite like that. Um, because it's more like life where the eating disorder can take you this twisty, windy, confusing path to the center of your being. And that, that's where the real, um, uh, transformation occurs because then, Once you get to that center, you get to take all that you've learned along the way, and now you make your way out uh, through more twists and turns and windy paths. So it's a different, I I try to bring in a different image of what recovery looks like. Mm
0: -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the programming that you're offering now as an online program Mm -hmm. and and what that looks like for people Mm -hmm. who are participating?
2: Well, it started um, years ago. People kept asking me for a workbook for eating in the light of the moon. And to be honest, every time I thought about it, it just seemed boring to me. Uh, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And then I was um, I had been doing soul hunger workshops, which I still do around the country. And I also was working with a, a dietitian who had come to one of my retreats, the uh, professional training retreats that I do in Hawaii with uh, Francie White and Carolyn Coston And we do women's And she said, Oh, I want I want to learn how to do this. And I said, I can teach you. So she started running, uh, eating in the light of the moon support groups, but nobody ever wanted to leave. And so then she had five groups. And so she said, Anita, do you think we could create this online? And I went, Oh, wow, I don't know, but I'm willing to try. And so we spent a year. Uh, Creating it and came up with the Light of the Moon Cafe, which uh, now has expanded, and I have a series of um, three different interactive courses with me that when somebody signs up for eight weeks every single day they will get in their email box they'll get um uh let's say mm, day one we're reading chapter seven and ying light the moon and then day two might be me telling this an audio of me telling the story and interpreting it then day three might be a poem about that concept and then day four might be an audio of a metaphor and and day five might be an activity and then day six will be um, songs to listen to, and then there's a forum, and everybody communicates on the forum, and I'm on that forum every day answering everyone's questions and responding their comments, and then we have live calls, and so we do this for eight weeks, and it's really extraordinary. Uh, the women, um, and there's one rule, which is um, no advice, only support, and nobody's broken that rule since. So I, I, I have that. And then I recently created a self-study course. So sometimes people didn't want to wait till the, the longer course started. And so they could hop on at any time. And that's at lightofthemooncafe.com. You could, you, you know, your listeners can go check that out. And if you go to lightofthemoon.com and you sign up, uh, if you go there to get the PDF, for example, of the Food and Metaphors Guide that I was talking about, then um, uh, you'll get, I'm releasing in a few weeks, a series of free videos, uh, soul hunger videos, I call them. So I have this platform now where I get to interact with people from all over the world, and um, it's really amazing. Um, I'm enjoying it immensely. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that it offers daily support because mm-hmm. I think that there's oftentimes when I'm working with people that even twice a week therapy isn't enough. Mm-hmm. That they're yeah. not, Because eating disorder is working 24 hours a day. Like I, right. I, I tell clients, right. that it's doing pushups right. while you're sleeping. Right. <laughs> so right. Right. so you, right. like having that intention right. on a daily basis of this yeah. is, my recovery is the most important thing in my life and I will, you know, create time for this. But then having a community Uh, people going through it at the same
2: time same time and And the cool cool thing is you can if you're up at three o'clock in the morning and can't sleep you can go to the cafe and say, oh, I'm going to see what someone posted about that poem on, at the cafe or, mm-hmm. or uh, if they uploaded a drawing that, that we've been working on. Or So, you know, that's really um, something. And the women really connect and support each other in the most extraordinary ways. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I love it. And the new one is that the new crescent moon will be starting in February. So I'm really excited.
0: So they can either go and wait for that one to start in February and start with the whole group for the eight week mm-hmm. program, or they mm-hmm. can do their own self-study if they want to
2: start. Right, right. Today. They and want to go. Online yeah, and the self-study. Day. Yeah. There's no interaction with me and it's, it's a mini course, but it, it, you know, it's a great way to get your feet wet. And then also, um, once somebody gets on my list, I send out every week, um, I do vlogs of different metaphors, uh, or different podcasts that I might do or, um, uh, different announcements. And so people would get on the list to get, to get that kind of inspiration.
0: Wonderful. That's such a great resource. So we'll put a link to the light of the moon cafe and on both our website. And then that will link them up to you and then if you want again the list of metaphors for what does crunchy salty mean, <laughs> <laughs> what is chocolate mean that's at www.lightofthemooncafe.com <laughs> so is there uh, anything else that you th- that you would want to share with us dr johnson before we close
2: yeah i do the thing that i think is so important for people to understand is that Recovery, full, complete recovery is possible. Recovered period. Now, now, it's sort of like a train. You know, there's some people that that. Um, might get off at a stop and that's good enough for them and so that they're always be in recovery and, and they may be following a food plan and, and that's what works for them. But I, I I think it's important that people know that should you choose to stay the course and be absolutely free of struggles with f- food and dieting and and uh obsessions with with you know how you look and what you're eating that is possible I know of thousands of women who have done it and are are living extraordinary lives and I meant it when I said this earlier that in my experience and this is what keeps me doing what I do those have struggled and recovered are the ones the world has been waiting for they have extraordinary gifts that come out of their their very emotionally sensitive intuitive nature and so i'm always cheering those on that they want to go because we all benefit
0: well that's a wonderful thing to close on recovery is absolutely possible and we look forward to seeing all the women that are going to be moving into recovery as a yeah. result of some of your programming. So thank you.
2: Yes. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to psychologists off the clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's off the clock, P-S-Y-C-H.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.